What's up, everyone? I'm Andrew Steinwald, and this is Zima Red. On this show, we speak with the users, founders, and creatives that are diving into the world of unique digital assets, also called non-fungible tokens. My guest today is Arif Khan. Arif is the founder of Aletheia AI, which is a platform to create, share, and monetize synthetic media. They are creating the synthetic media with the help of AI and GPT-3. What this means is that we are now able to create totally artificial characters, and we can have regular conversations with these virtual beings. This conversation was amazing because Arf is able to effectively explain how AI will impact the metaverse in our future, and it also opened up my eyes to the multidimensional nature of NFTs. I generally thought of NFTs as static images, GIFs, or videos, but by adding upgradable intelligence, we are creating an entirely new layer of the metaverse. This is one you do not want to miss. Please enjoy my conversation with Arif. Before diving into today's episode, I want to briefly talk about our sponsor, Whale Street. Whale Street is a decentralized token swap protocol. They can make huge currency swaps happen, or whale swaps as they're called, with very small slippage costs and without crashing the system. They also engineered the largest ever NFT bundle and fractionalized it into the historic B20 tokens. If you want to swap, farm, or find out more, check out whalestreet.xyz. Now let's jump back into the episode. Arif, thank you so much for joining me today. Super excited to chat with you. And to get us started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Yeah, great to be here, Andrew, and always uh, have been a big fan of your work and how you've brought, how you're super early to the space, but also you've brought so much um, meaning and awareness to some really uh, cool creators and projects that are really pushing the boundaries of what uh, NFTs are, but just this, what this entire space is about. So just very briefly about me, um, I am an immigrant entrepreneur. I, I came to the U.S. about three years ago. Um, but I grew up in Singapore and I uh, sort of worked in the tech industry uh, with a couple of uh, larger, more established Web 2.0 brands. Uh, I worked for LinkedIn in Southeast Asia. Uh, and then later on, I joined a, a startup. Well, I won't call it a startup because it raised a ton of funding from SoftBank, right? So it's uh, the Uber of Southeast Asia uh, called Grab, where I did a bit of product marketing. And uh, halfway through it, I just... You know, I, I bit the sort of Ethereum bug around early 2017 and fell. I remember like speaking to my team about Ethereum and <laughs> I brought in this speaker who was a, who was a friend of mine and who uh, who was uh, who, who had read the Ethereum white paper uh, in like 2016, I think, and was uh, offering to um pay out drinks or uh, like every time we'd go out for an event he would be more than happy to like uh, uh, get all of us uh, or, or pay us back through ethereum just to onboard us so he was like one of those really cool guys none of us unfortunately back in the day fully understood it but he he did and um uh, i remember bringing him to a, a small session that i organized uh, um, uh, at grab uh, where we were talking a little bit about uh, how Ethereum is likely to change the financial infrastructure of the world. And I didn't get it fully back then, and none of my peers got it, and towards the end of it, everyone looked at me weirdly. But I just had this sense that uh, this entire, uh, the weirdness around it was what made it really, really deeply special. But also, um, in the early days, the experiments were so radical um, that it reminded me of my earlier times when I was... 10 or 12 and I first got an Xbox that I saved up and I was trying to do this thing called Flash 
uh, flash sop hacking where you open up the Xbox so that you can you can play with uh, with different you, you can play with uh, bootleg DVDs on it and you can play bootleg games because the real games are so expensive for a 10 to 12 year old to afford right so that's a that's a, a bit of a brief professional background but also sort of a hobbyist background into why why I've always enjoyed tinkering and I got into crypto uh, around 2017 when I when I came to the US and I started spending some time in San Francisco just because I had really burnt out from the corporate gig and spent so much time just uh, looking at um, the way social networks were growing and, and there had to be a better way where uh, we were not just rent-seeking middlemen uh, because that, that does uh, take the joy out of your being, right? So. I took some time out and uh, started looking at uh, Ethereum and earlier earlier versions of uh, uh, the models in 2017 in San Francisco that were emerging. So um, that was when I met a uh, gentleman, uh, a really, really visionary person, I think, uh, Dr. Ben Gertzel. And uh, he uh, was bringing this strange, so this is where it starts to get a little bit weird, but he was bringing this strange robot around with him called Sophia. So, he was this man with like long rock star like hair and he was walking around a conference that I had uh, helped to organize and set up and and uh, he had brought this robot called Sophia and he was talking with her and she was talking back and uh, they were starting to do some uh, initial meditation sessions where Sophia the robot would lead a person through a meditation and um, earlier experiments around this had shown like people were getting into altered states of consciousness and we're feeling a sense of awe and, 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 and peace when they meditated with a robot. So it's very fringe, very far out. You know, crypto is already far out, but then you meet somebody bringing a robot around and talking about AI. Uh, that's, that's also even, even stranger. What's, what's then even stranger is that he wanted to combine, um, uh, uh, as part of his vision for SingularityNet, uh, AI uh, marketplace. He wanted to create an AI marketplace that was going to be built on the blockchain. So... I spoke with him. I loved what he was doing. It was so edgy and crazy. And later on, I joined as the chief marketing officer. And I really had a, a tremendous opportunity over the next two years, uh, from 2017 to the end of uh, 2019, really, to build a team out and enable the growth of that network. And just before the pandemic, I foolishly decided to start Aletheia. So that's sort of that's sort of the the rough background of. Uh, the edges of curiosity, but also the chaos that emerges, and sometimes the opportunities. So, so that's that's uh, that's a bit about me. That's amazing. All right. So you mentioned that you had a friend that kind of introduced you to crypto. You mentioned it was like kind of weird, and and the the, the vision and goals were so lofty of of like this uh, crypto future. But what was it specifically that kind of initially attracted you to uh, Ethereum and crypto more broadly? Yeah, I, th I think there was this. Like when I started seeing the Reddit threads and the earlier discussions, it just reminded me a little bit about my childhood to some degree when I was really on forums trying to figure out how to hack the Xbox so I could play bootleg games, right? And like, so there was this like odd sense of familiarity and vagueness, but that personally aside, what I started to see in the earlier days was uh, uh, just just the, the very idea that we could... Um, create a currency and create a community around that currency was 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 not really new to me. I had looked at and studied some other uh, economic models where 
communities, uh, local currencies, uh, people uh, creating their own grassroots-based initiatives where they were not forced into this tyranny of um, of, uh, of of being subjected to somebody that owns the money supply. Right? So what was really powerful to me was was the sheer amount of, of, of power it was actually giving back to people and uh, that 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 struck me that if people can just create their own user generated capital or user generated uh, uh, back then we we were talking a lot at LinkedIn and and later on Grab as you know we were empowering people to uh, become creators and owning owning their resume owning their CV but really and and, and uh, you know having the opportunity to be part of the shared sharing economy right but then very soon you realize that these are earlier iterations of the deeper human desire to actually uh, own uh, and uh, be responsible agents of our own lives. And I think what crypto did there was it just opened my eyes to the possibility of becoming self-sovereign again, right? Like not part of, not, not this fractured being that has its economic freedom taken away or its complete um, uh, or, or even just elements of financial tyranny that you don't see up front, but they sort of like, um, they, 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 they eat at you in a very small way. Death, it's, it's like the phrase death by a thousand cuts, right? You don't see the impact of these systems until you hit your 40s and then you realize I'm depressed, I'm this, I'm that, I'm, you know, I have all of these problems and then you realize... And you don't know why you're having these challenges or problems, but a lot of it comes down, I think, fundamentally to the fact that the ability for a person to be sovereign over their thoughts, to be able to think independently, to be able to participate in a system independently is, is really critical. So it was that independent streak, but also the ability for, I started seeing this, this hacker-like uh, uh, personas that were emerging and, and that sort of just connected me to earlier uh, experiments that I did in my childhood. So it was a mix of intuition, but also just a sort of attraction for, for the ecosystem that was being built. So that's, uh, that's how I sort of dive deeper into it. <laughs> that's amazing. Okay, so can you tell me about AI and just broadly explain like, what is it? And then what, how did you get initially attracted to it? You, you mentioned here is your friend, Ben, who had that kind of AI robot, Sophia. But I'd love it for you to tell me what is AI and how did you get attracted to AI? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, my, my first experience with it was really um, at LinkedIn when we were starting to congest. Uh, so we were starting to look at just broadly, these data scientists were really focused on building the economic graph uh, of all activity of all economic activity in this world. And so LinkedIn is like this giant platform where, you know, when somebody posts a job update, uh, it goes, it, it sort of circulates and shares uh, that information out with, with your immediate network. But then it also stores that data uh, into, into a network. And that network starts to learn and the network starts to become intelligent about patterns that are emerging and the network starts to be able to actually um, create meaningful uh, uh, outputs or inferences about what is possible, what is what is uh, likely to be possible. So that was sort of the first initial experiment when I spoke with a data scientist about um, how data, uh, how data that was user generated would go into this giant sort of uh, uh, algorithm that would then create a meaningful output that businesses could then use to shape their talent strategy or they could shape their go to market or they could shape 
their recruitment strategy, right? So, but then at the base layer, their vision really was to build an economic graph. Um, as I started looking a little bit more into the foundations of what was driving it, I mean, it really is just mathematics, uh, but at a, at, a, at a much deeper level or a philosophical level, AI is really misunderstood uh, just because uh, the analogies that people draw to it, um, uh, or at least when they try to explain it, they describe it as a new electricity or a new paradigm that will you know, fundamentally uh, transform uh, the world. And, and to, to a large degree, that's, 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 that's somewhat true. The only, challenge, the only challenges we've seen so far uh, tend to sometimes be around like separating what's hype versus what's actual reality and what's really possible today. The people in AI that tend to be uh, uh, extremely focused on, on the research oftentimes have trouble articulating what exactly they're researching or focused on, just like the scientists or technical people sometimes have, have the challenge on. So for, for me, really, as a, as a hobbyist, as somebody who has delved deeper into this industry uh, so deeply, for me, AI is really deeply tied to mathematics. But foundationally, the, the, the golden true north of AI is to get to this idea which Ben as well created, which was AGI, Artificial General Intelligence, where the AI itself is aware, self-aware, and is able to autonomously uh, create uh, uh, meaningful output, but also uh, be able to infer uh, accurate information. So you're starting to see earlier, you're starting to see some cool experiments around this that have succeeded, right? Like. Uh, DeepMind at Google, for, for example, is able to play some really cool games with humans and, and, and win, win against humans. But the goal here tends to uh, orient itself towards uh, finding opportunities where you can embed some of these algorithms and some of these uh, uh, mini, uh, some of these tools to really augment uh, human decision making. That's like step one, but step two and step three that, that are coming is like they don't just augment human decision making uh, like the LinkedIn economic graph, but they can actually take it a lot further. Um, they can even guide you on what's, what's the right foundational question to ask. And this is where like the recent innovations by OpenAI's GPT-3 engine have, have left me completely floored because uh, they've transformed the way content can be created and meaningful output can be generated and the AI can actually understand or at least pretends to understand you well, right? So, so we're getting to the point, the true north, which is artificial general intelligence. I think that's still a ways away, but the honest truth is that as the applications start, uh, uh, as the applications start to get built on OpenAI's engine, you'll start seeing a lot more uh, um, AI in people's daily lives. And we're, we're seeing some of that already with Siri, Alexa, uh, with very rapid responses uh, that are coming out from the larger tech companies. But when you really are able to um, allow the common man to have access to it, it's, it's a very, very powerful enabler for their self-sovereignty. All right, so this is a perfect segue. Could you explain to me what Aletheia AI is and why is it exciting? Yeah, uh, so Alethea AI is, is a company I started um, just for exploring this entire industry, which was which was going to be focused on AI-generated content. Because, and, and this is tied to some personal pains I experienced, because when I joined SingularityNet as a CMO, 
I remember once bringing Sophia the robot to Malta and I was traveling with one of uh, their engineers and we had to go through a process with security and I already have trouble going through security just because of the way I look right like uh, um, you know like a Middle Eastern man who says he's from Singapore but not really right so like they have a lot of questions but now as I travel through through security I have this robot with me that because she, Traveling with Sophia, the robot, means you oftentimes have to uh, dismember her body, her torso and her head so that she can fit into the luggage pieces. So as you're going through security, you can imagine strange alarms going off uh, uh, as, as you put, put her through that, right? So like, and whether you hand carry her or whether you bring her into the, the luggage, uh, the, 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 the uh, checked bag uh, baggage area, right? So... I was going through that process and then we had to then set up Sophia the robot at an event or conference and I realized that a lot of this um, uh, boils and then we would then have video production crew come in to interview her right and they would be, they would interview her and she would just have I think she has like 100,000 plus Twitter followers but uh, her ability was restricted sometimes to just speaking English right and and the challenge here was um, she has so many fans from many different parts of the world, from Korea, from Japan, uh, from China, that don't speak English or understand it. And the output that she could generate was only in a single language. And at the same time, she was not very scalable in the sense that you could not really um, uh, multiply uh, her presence, have her have multiple conversations with people. And so this was uh, an interesting problem that I started looking at. And I was trying to see how can video production really... Um, how can AI solve content and video production at scale? Uh, just because I had a personal interest in storytelling, I had a personal interest in narratives. Uh, and when I started looking at this area, I looked at the massive transformations that were going to be possible with this. So for example, um, you could hypothetically one day, uh, just like we've seen in the past where somebody has brought Tupac's hologram back at a conf at a event or a conference, you can now... Uh, technically do the same for um, a dead celebrity but we can also do that for uh, many different uh, uh, many different use cases the only difference is that what used to cost six seven hundred thousand dollars or millions of dollars to create a hologram now will cost a lot cheaper and can be hosted on the web or on a mobile browser or on different channels but still interact with you and speak with you um, so so those those are some some interesting uh, reasons why uh, how the technology is, is, is actually going to evolve but the foundational reason for studying Alethea was really to explore the intersection of these two exponential technologies so content creation on the AI side but then once you start asking the question of AI generated content you then have to then ask the, the question on what exactly is, is true uh, because if you can create content so rapidly so let's say I'm talking to Andrew today and I have enough of his voice data and I, and I have enough of his face data, uh, can I construct a version of Andrew? And if I use GPT-3, can I reconstruct him uh, based on his past tweets? Technically, yes, that's, that's certainly possible. It might be sort of like a, uh, a dummy version of you, but still the possibilities of this AI-generated Andrew, the fact that it can be deep faked and still hold a somewhat intelligent conversation is scary. And so that's where sort of the, the blockchain angle back then uh, in, its, in its sort of 
uh, earlier days it was difficult to get people to understand content provenance, but now everyone understands it. I think that these technologies that AI will, will create, that AI will facilitate content creation capabilities that it will create will, uh, will necessitate and require almost as a forcing function a content provenance or some sort of indication or blue check mark, just like Twitter has, uh, that this content is authenticated or validated, uh, that this is the virtual twin of Andrew S. approved by him, right? As opposed to some other twins, like Elon Musk, for example, has a ton of fake Elon Musk accounts on Twitter, but there's only one Elon with a blue tech, right? And I think the the power behind that, of course, the question is like, who's giving the blue tick and who determines that? But that's that's something that we can definitely discuss. The main thing there, though, is like whatever happened with text based content, the multiplicity we saw with text, like how people were were able to generate so much text and SMS and WhatsApp and all of this text content that started emerging as we enable people with new communication tools, that same revolution is going to happen with video-based content, with 3D-based content, with CGI-based content. And so um, that's where we are. Uh, and, and that's why you'll start seeing, I think, in the next year or two, like companies like solely dedicated to like solving, I mean, I think it's already here, but like the deep fake problem, like, like video provenance, finding uh, content. Alethea isn't focused on that at all. In fact, we're focused on ensuring that we can create really compelling, cool content for creators and creators can use these tools and that they can own the assets. So our vision and mission uh, is that we believe fundamentally that uh, the metaverse will emerge with millions of these, billions of these inter interactive characters and the intelligence that will power these characters uh, would be driven by AI. And so I think you've, you've talked a little bit about this as well, but just uh, generally oriented around um, the impact that uh, these uh, AI characters will have in the metaverse. I think it's going to be uh, uh, fundamental and transformative uh, uh, because they might even be more interactive, funnier, they'll be 24 seven and they'll always be there, right? So, so there are things that humans can't do that, that AI agents will, able to, will be able to do uh, much uh, in, a, in a, a much more scalable and efficient manner. Uh, the key thing is that we should certainly not lose our humanity in, in, in the process of that. All right, so if you just sum up Aletheia AI in, in kind of a, a one-liner, it would be uh, like an AI platform for content creation, or, or what would that one-liner be? Yeah, uh, we're we're basically a platform to create, share, and monetize synthetic media, and we allow creators to use our AI tools to um, be able to create and share. And then the monetization part, we use on our blockchain tools to facilitate that uh, transaction. Awesome. Okay, so you mentioned before that AI used to cost. You know, to kind of compute these vast data sets and whatnot, it would, it would cost millions of dollars in some cases. So why is AI becoming so advanced so quickly? Is it kind of due to Moore's law and just, you know, the, the compute power is, is increasing on a, every, every year? Or is it because of like GPT-3, which um, I'd love for you to explain like what GPT-3 is as well. Um, so yeah, just like, why is it becoming, uh, why is it now possible to do these things with AI? And also, what is GBT3? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the um, the, the first question on, on, on compute, right? Like what AWS and uh, 
let's say Google Cloud or IBM Cloud, what they've done is really made it easy to spin up servers and allow startups to access GPU credits and actually build infrastructure, right? And um, and this AWS, this component, this critical piece of cloud infrastructure, the ability to create um, or build this out without a user or a startup or a company needing to go and rent and create their own cloud uh, compute departments and find servers and rent those out. Uh, the way they've solved this problem really has enabled a lot of experimentation um, for startups that are in the AI space. And that is really powerful because these technologies and tools were not available to smaller companies about uh, you know even seven or eight years ago, right? So, uh, the, the, and many companies have tried actually this, I think, um, the, the founder of, of, of Netscape, if I recall, they had also tried um, to build something like AWS back in the back in uh, back in the dot com boom era, and none of it succeeded just because the unit economics of hosting servers, land, temperature cooling, all of these things that run the the, the AI machines, they would just not be. Um, uh, it would not be possible just from a business standpoint because you'd just be burning cash and hemorrhaging cash. But today, AWS uh, Cloud is one of the most profitable, I believe, uh, or, or most lucrative business lines, right? So that's that's sort of one, one path, um, which now startups can get access to that level of cloud computational capability. It's like really a superpower for a lot of people. So the, that is tied to Moore's law, that is tied to GPU credits become avail becoming available, but it's also tied to innovative business models and um, the revolution we've seen in the past decade or so with, with, with the rise of the large tech giants. So as, as difficult and as bad as that has been for society, there has been some innovation and capabilities that have become possible because computation has become accessible, not just cheap. Even if it was cheap, if there was no distribution model to make it accessible, there would be tremendously costly to acquire that, right? So that's a key pillar of making it accessible. Um, the the second part around GPT-3 really is that uh, at its core basis, it's it's a language model, and think of it as a very intelligent uh, uh, intelligent machine that can understand the inputs that you're putting in in plain language and give you meaningful output in plain language. And this itself, the way that it can do that is, is a revolution. And uh, it is a revolution because what they've done is they've not just made it easy for the machine to understand you and give re reasonable output, but what they've done is they've also enabled it through the very simple deliverable of an API call. And this itself is is, 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 is is quite significant because AI and the ability to interact with um, a very complex uh, language model, a transformer model like GPT-3 would be out of reach for startups unless they had like, you know, chief data scientists or a, a top machine learning engineer. But today you can really experiment and play around with this technology as part of their closed beta. And you don't necessarily need uh, um, a, a specific uh, machine learning engineer, you can write a prompt. So just like asking uh, a friend a question or you can ask and, and you can ask GPT-3 a question. You can even, uh, they call it uh, uh, prompt it or, or just give it some references of what you think the answer is likely to be. And it starts to learn from that and then gives you reasonable answers. So 
if I gave, for example, uh, GPT-3 a Marvel comic book script and I said, hey, this is the character Spider-Man from this comic book and these are his scripts or these are his lines with great power comes great responsibility. Can you now construct a dialogue for me, Miss, you know, uh, uh, GPT-3 uh, to uh, have a conversation with Spider-Man? And GPT-3 would be able to make that inference and take that leap and sound reasonably like Spider-Man. And all of this without a single line of code written. So what their innovation at OpenAI has been is really just democratizing the ability for normal everyday people to be able to type in a prompt and get an output. The only challenge here, and this is why it's a closed beta, is very quickly this can be used for harm, right? So like if I wanted to type a spam email or if I wanted to generate a ton of like harmful content or hate speech, right? Like, hey, GPT-3, train a model that's based on Hitler's Mein Kampf, right? So like, like these things certainly can go wrong very quickly and very fast. And so that's why they're really testing it in a in sort of a private environment. And we've been somewhat privileged uh, since the early days of it opening up its access. Uh, and we've had the chance to play around with the core technology. So at the end of the day, it's really a, a, a meaningful uh, uh, intelligent uh, engine that that, that uh, claims that can produce output that looks like it's understanding it, but maybe at a deeper level, certainly the claim is that we, we, we humans ourselves don't know what knowing or understanding means per se, but the output is so reasonably sound that it mimics uh, human language and it certainly has, I think the GPT-2 models passed earlier uh, earlier tests, uh, uh, earlier Turing tests uh, that they've talked a little bit about, I think, uh, um, in early 2020. Okay, and, and you mentioned that a blockchain can help combat a few of these issues that could potentially arise with AI, one of them being like the deep fake. So if there's a deep fake of me, um, you know, in theory, if there's like a, a blockchain where I could like sign and say, oh no, there, this, this video over here is a deep fake of me, this video over here, I've actually signed this, and you guys know it's actually truly Andrew Steinwald, right? Um, so that's kind of one example. And then also you mentioned like, Maybe the AI gets a hold of Mein Kampf and starts spouting out, you know, all things Hitler. So there's also kind of an aspect of like, maybe uh, there's a community moderation aspect of this where um, in theory, if there's like a DAO and like the community can vote, okay, no, don't allow the Mein Kampf AI uh, or the Hitler AI. Um, and then so the community kind of decides on that. Is this like, is this kind of where you see blockchain entering, like where blockchain solving these pain points or where do you see blockchain entering uh entering this kind of arena yeah yeah so so just look at the tremendous burden and that's a great question and look at the tremendous burden the centralized platforms like youtube and twitter are uh, and the conundrum they're in really because they now have to moderate what is hate speech and decide what is hate what is not uh and censor and and hide algorithm i mean there's so much uh deceit and uh, lack of transparency in the way that they've structured their newsfeed, right? Like what shows up for you, who gets censored, who gets put in like these uh, filter bubbles where they, their word doesn't spread. So these platforms like YouTube in its early days, user generated video, right? Like that's how they acquired massive number of people. And then Twitter is like, you know, user generated content of people's thoughts in 140 characters and then later on more and all of these platforms, because they're centralized, they suffer essentially from Jack Dorsey or in, 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 in Google's case or in Facebook's case, uh, their centralized entity deciding 
what content should be on the platform. Now, is there a, is there a better way of doing content moderation or governance? Uh, that, there's no clear answer there today. There are some experiments happening in uh, the crypto world. Like I think Audius has a very interesting model for content moderation for music, but at a very deeper level, uh, the ability for people to decide what content should or should not be on a platform is fundamentally uh, um, is, is, is that that vector for me is more directionally ethical, but also more accurate representation of what people want. And, uh, and, and this is something this is something really, really critical when you try and start looking at sometimes freedom of speech arguments versus societies where the state controls a lot more of that speech. Now, it's very easy and very straightforward to say, OK, the state should allow all sorts of speech and, and be free. But in the US specifically, the importance of freedom of speech allows truth to be spoken to power. And the moment you remove that, uh, that, 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 that central tradition of satire, that central tradition of uh, the ability to speak one's mind, all of these things that sometimes we take for granted, can go out of the door very quickly. So for people to be able to choose what content stays on the platform is, is really important. So that can be perhaps like what we're thinking about is that there will be opportunities for a DAO to govern that, uh, to set certain standards about what's possible. Now, the tricky part here, Andrew, and this is that's why it's an emergent thing and it's on a case by case basis. The Hitler example is relevant because, you know, there is a rising tide of uh, of, of right-leaning people in the U.S., in the U.S., but also in Europe, that are denying denying that the Holocaust ever existed, right? And, and this is this is this number is uh, disproportionately growing, and it's very very unfortunate, and and this of course needs to be stopped. Now, should if, for example, the Dow decides that we, for the historic record, that there was this person called Hitler, and he did X Y Z things, and we must preserve his content so that people can know what evil is. And they decide, okay, let's have Hitler, but then let's put him in a, in a jail cell or in some sort of 3D world where only he can spout, he can, you can only talk to him in a restricted setting. Now that's a call for the Tao to make because they need to preserve the history so that people don't forget it. But history is the first thing to get erased um, the moment uh, people start to construct narratives that are no longer anchored on the truth, right? So this question on Hitler, whether Hitler should exist in, 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 in as, as, as even a Twitter account, is so fundamental to like freedom of speech claims, but also to what actually happened in history, right? Because people who are who have a vested interest on both sides uh, may may want an outcome that that will not will not necessarily favor the broader. Uh, uh, benefits that something like this would bring to our human learning and human memory. Yes, evil was done. Yes, there were deep harms that this situation did. It's wrong to deny something that obviously existed. Uh, but at the same time, we don't want somebody to be spouting anti-Semitic stuff. But at the same time, we still need to preserve it. Preserve the idea that this is our conceptualization of what evil is. And so certain things like this cannot be erased from, from, from history, but at the same time, they should not be used to uh, propagate hate. And this is the fine line that these platforms will soon have to run into. I think people should decide that, either through a DAO or through votes. 
uh, and it should not be decided by a centralized entity, right? So, so that's that's where the debate becomes very interesting. And a, a simple example like that has tremendous amount of nuance and detail that needs to be captured by that is better captured by people that are willing to govern the platform. Wow, that is a, that is a, such a tough kind of. In theory, it, it's very easy. You're like, okay, Hailer's bad, therefore, like, don't you know? You know what I mean? But in reality, it's very tough because there are so many different nuances to kind of how you you're right you got to preserve history and, and kind of and point to that and say look this guy's bad don't be like that but also you don't want it to propagate right you know you don't want to encourage that type of behavior so it's um it's a really really difficult kind of problem to solve do you think that the people that are so so overall i think most people the majority of people are good right and have good intentions right so in theory a dao should should uh, kind of solve that if if you know if, if there's enough people in there but then in theory again you could also have a dao that just happens to have all these neo-Nazis in it, and therefore they're very kind of motivated to uh, propagate things in like the 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 incorrect or what we call the incorrect way. So, so like, yeah, how do you how do you solve for these issues? I mean, these are like really really. Hard. I'm not expecting you to have like the answers, but just just if you had to throw some ideas out there, how would you solve this? Yeah, I I think I can. You know, one frame that has helped me is like, how do I not want to solve it? Right? Like, what is the outcome that I'm trying to avoid and like one thing that would be really difficult is 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 looking at societies where censorship runs rampant and letting um, letting so so one framework that's been helpful is don't let the state decide what speech is right because the moment that happens you move into a model where a core tenet of speech which belongs to the people, which is owned by the people, which which blood has been shed by the people for the people, right? That is a right to speak and the right to have ideas, the right to debate those ideas, the right to have those ideas be articulated. If we let a state decide that space and what can or cannot be said, that is very dangerous territory, right? So, 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 so that's like a core tenet. And the other groups that that oftentimes are in society and they have been there, they're largely, uh, and, and I'm not at all defending neo-Nazis, Islamic radicals, all of the entire spectrums of, of people who, 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 who are completely uh, out of uh, existing modern capitalistic order. But there is something also to be said uh, of the 1980s to 90s where a tremendous amount and, 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 and this, this is not an apology for, by any means for, for any of the harms done to, to these people, but when we started, when the, when the effects of globalization attacked uh, local American communities that were white and they lost their jobs and it also started to attack middle and lower class Americans across where they lost the ability to work in uh, blue-collar jobs and these jobs were shipped out to different parts of the world just because it was economically feasible and there was no societal support structure. The moment you do that, these slightly larger societal tensions play out very publicly because people have lost hope and meaning uh, and they cannot participate effectively in society because they don't have something to anchor themselves into um, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. So. That's when you start seeing very quickly uh, splinter groups or groups that want to say there is a better way possible uh, emerge and they're often at the fringes, but they all have the same sort of signature. If you look at some of the deeply radical uh, 
uh, uh, left folks and some of the deeply radical right folks, like they, they, they talk in almost, I think they've also looked at some studies here, but their language patterns are very absolutist. Like they have a very strong way of speaking and a very defined worldview that uh, they're both really radically correct in, right? So, so there's no real center or middle ground. And this is the tragedy, unfortunately, which these centralized platforms, which these centralized platforms like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube have also sort of fallen into the trap, right? They just amplify these extreme voices so much, so often, so quickly, so powerfully uh, because they generated outrage, because they generated views and clicks and that advertising model uh, put us into some of this position. So a DAO, anybody who says that a DAO can solve this problem is, is delusional uh, because a DAO can take the steps in creating the rules so that we have better problems, right? And, and we try and move towards higher orders and, and a little bit more complex problems that we can, we can try and shift towards. But certainly the answer is not state control speech. Certainly the answer is not centralized control speech. So what is emerging today, if we just update our Bayesian priors, is just that this is a path uh, possible that, that, that people can begin to educate themselves on and, and it's a path that must that should be explored. So I tend to answer that question conservatively because I think content moderation for something as potent as, 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 as hate speech and all of these, these are really uh, explosive topics and can be deeply challenging to, to, to remotely confront. But at least we know some things that have not worked. And let's not try to repeat that because, uh, you know, insanity is just repeating things, right? Like they're, they're doing the same thing and expecting a different result, as Einstein said. All right. So switching gears here. So you think that the future of content production, and this is like the news, this is YouTubers, Twitch streamers, like everything, and also writing and whatnot. You think that this will all be kind of taken over by AIs? And the reason being is because, you know, they don't get tired. They don't need to eat. Um, you can play, you know, they don't cost as much uh, for in salary. And, um, you know, they can create content all day. Are, are these the reasons why kind of AI content producers are the future? And do you think that there's a place for humans in the future in this, you know, world of, of content production? Yeah, yeah. In, in, in essence, the, 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 vec the directional vector is headed towards this, this pathway where intelligent AI characters uh, um, will find a space to operate and be so like one very quick application might be npc characters in games right you can really upgrade their intelligence and you can have really cool deeply meaningful conversations with them right and uh, you could go on side quests you could do different things and they don't they, they may not require um uh, and, and they might create actually very rich experiences for the game or for the metaverse itself but broadly for for content production right now ai is largely used as an augmentation tool for human creativity so um, you can easily use some of these uh, copywriting tools that are being built on top of gpt3 to generate great copy you can generate a great blog post line you can generate a great uh, a paragraph or two about um, uh, an essay you can generate a summary of a, of a podcast uh, but the challenge here is the, the, the important thing here is that AI is presently being used as an augmenting uh, uh, capability sort of multiplier for an existing human creative. The, where it starts to cross that gap where the AI replaces the human entirely is where people get extremely sensitive and, 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 and careful about that line because, and that is when AI agents start to function 
or AI characters start to function autonomously. That means they start to have their own almost sense of will or a pre-programmed, not, not even a pre-programmer, so that they can generate. And this is the moment in sort of West world sort of where they break the simulation and they come out of it. And it's not unlike the story that we humans ourselves are in, right? Like where we're trying experiments to break the simulation itself. But in this case, the AI starts to generate its own will and its own capacity to reason, to be, to exist. Um, that is when we may start thinking a little bit more about science fiction scenarios of another species. Uh, but we're still a far way away from that. What we are seeing right now in the next couple of years are going to be exactly that. AI news anchors, content production houses, uh, using AI to generate characters, models, faces, voices. You're going to see augmentation, but replacement of the autonomous uh, human being is, is still a ways off. So are, are those the initial use cases for Aletheia? Is it going to be YouTube content, uh you know, news content, just user-generated content, essentially? Or what are the initial use cases for Aletheia? Yeah, yeah. So so this is where I think the impact of the blockchain is, is going to be really deeply felt. And I'd love to just uh, talk a little bit about how we see non-fungible tokens in uh, working in this in this space with us. But we want to pioneer, and, and now I'm going to pioneer a new standard called the Intelligent NFT. And um, the... NFT, uh, a, a non-fungible token is, is very powerful because of its, its, its scarcity, but also non-fungibility. The main thing, however, is that you can now begin, just like they've evolved from static images. Uh, you know, when you look at NFTs on like Zora or any marketplace out there, like Foundation, you'll see some static images. Those are kind of cool. You'll see uh, GIFs and you'll start seeing videos. And so you've, you're seeing evolution of the media and we're still so early here because we haven't fully stretched the possibilities of what can sit in a non-fungible token or what can actually exist within that design space, right? So uh, when you start embedding intelligence into the non-fungible token, this is where uh, it starts to go a bit wild. So what I mean by embedding intelligence into it is is that you can actually have a full AI character that is uh, uh, whose, 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 whose scarcity, provable scarcity is shown as an NFT and whose intelligence, whose personality uh, is, is locked into that NFT as well. And I think that's where we are going to see an explosive number of use cases coming out as people start building non-fungible tokens uh, uh, for art pieces, but we believe fundamentally that people will also start building intelligent NFTs, where you'll start seeing characters uh, that are uh, that will have their own unique uh, NFT, but will also have a unique intelligence. Now, a quick example here would be: you have a waifu token, for example, like a waifu character or a CryptoPunk or um, or a hash mask, and now you want it to have a personality and you want to interact with it and you want to have a conversation with it or you want to learn from it, right? You can easily add that in and actually create a new class of characters. Your CryptoPunk can talk to you, your uh, Waifu can talk to you, you can give 
it, its own personality. It can be a virtual assistant for you. It can set up appointments for you. It can be a part of your uh, life and it will extend into the design spaces that exist today. So you add another layer to the uh, NFT space by integrating this. So that's that's like a really important use case that we've been thinking for a long time about. And we just think that in the metaverse that will come 50 years, 60 years from now, or 10 years or five years, um, we're going to see uh, intelligent NFTs be a very dominant uh, force, uh, force for nature just because there will be uh, interactions that are possible, but there might be an intelligent NFT that might just become its own celebrity, right? So like there is an interesting blog post on, I remember reading it sometime back, but it's really written by a human uh, and it was an XE character or an XE uh, uh, XE character that, say, that says that it has a personality and it has a nice Twitter account. And, but it is written by a human and a human is writing it. The difference now is that you can now scale this up to millions of XE characters or millions of um, uh, different NFTs and actually give them, gift them the gift of personality uh, and interaction so they can now interact with you and speak with you. So that's like a very, very large foundational use case of, of where we see this going. The other use cases that are obviously going to emerge include content production, um, video content creation. Uh, those are really, really interesting to explore and, and they will also need their own uh, sort of provenance and source. Okay, so that's totally insane. Okay, so that's, that's so cool. Okay, so basically you, you think that people will be able to take, or not you think, people will be able to take their NFTs, maybe let's say a, you mentioned a hash mask or a CryptoPunk or whatever, and they're gonna be able to input like a personality into that NFT and be able to have a conversation with that NFT. Is, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So think of NFTs like like babies and uh, you'll be able to impart as a parent to that NFT an intelligence structure, a language structure. You'll be able to teach it uh, what, uh, what values you want it to have. And that's, that's when the NFT starts to really evolve as a medium because it, 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 that, that CryptoPunk, just like look at the static image, the GIF, right? Like so many NFTs now that are GIFs and GIFs are not really, um, de you know, you don't see GIFs sold at Christie's or some of the traditional art houses because they're like, you know, uh, pardon my friend, but what the fuck, we prefer like these, you know, the Rembrandt or the classics, right? But as you see these new mediums evolve where people are taking static images and now actually making them moving, making them move and animate them. My question has always been what's next? And what's next is when you actually look at the medium itself uh, and the medium speaks back to you. Right? And then the medium really becomes the message, right? Because you, you are able to then have a full uh, uh, meaningful conversation relationship with the asset that you purchase. So for example, if you, um, if you ever interacted with a, with, a, with a personality or you wanted a waifu to have a, its own personality or you wanted um, your own uh, uh, hash mask to talk, and your hash mask, let's say, was a, was a hash mask that looks like an elephant and that hash mask had the personality of uh, uh, an elephant species that might have gone extinct. And that elephant species is now telling you why it went extinct, what happened to it, and you are able to then preserve that, but also uh, be able to have people interact with that NFT to discover the story of that NFT, right? So, so we think this NFT layer is foundational, but adding intelligence into it and making it into an INFT will be fundamentally transformative to the, to, to the, to the space. 
Okay, that's really cool. You just mentioned INFT. Is that like a, an, an intelligent NFT or what does that stand for? Yeah, yeah, an intelligent NFT. That's so cool. Okay, so let's say I have a CryptoPunk and I want to give it a personality. I would go on to Aletheia and then kind of like, how, how does it does this functionally work? And then also, once I input a personality into my NFT, how does it evolve over time? Or do I have to, is it like once it's in there, it's in there and I can't kind of upgrade it? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the design space here is really wide because you're dealing with. Um, it's the question you're asking. It's almost like a question of like, what movie can I make, right? And you have like an endless canvas. So the process. Let me give you the process, right? The process is you come to Alethea, You'll uh, uh, you'll 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 have what is called an AI pod, right? And in this AI pod, uh, it's basically sort of a birth chamber where you can input the text you want the NFT to draw its personality from, right? And the uh, engine that we have, the AI engine that we have created will learn from the text and will uh, will will then use that text as its sort of um, Rosetta Stone, as the original source from which it must draw its personality from. So if you uh, decide to put uh, a chapter of uh, Revelations or uh, sorry, the book of Revelations, you might get a very angry God, right? So very prophetic sort of personality. So you want to be careful about the text that you put in and you want to make sure that the text is aligned to the personality that you want to shape and build. And then you once, once that's done, you can set the parameters and you can then either lock the NFT or link it with the pod. And as long as these two are linked, you would have the NFT voice that personality out. You can choose the voice, the texture, uh, the the type of tone that you want this personality to have. And there are these, uh, what, what are called big five traits of personality that are well known, uh, openness, conscientiousness, extraversion, neuroticism. All of these things will be, you can, you can sort of pre-program that on a spectrum and you'd be able to get a personality and then you can fine tune that a little bit before you sort of lock it into the NFT. So think of it as just a, a, a protocol that allows you to create this intelligent characters. You pass through the pod and you in, in that you interact with the Aletheia protocol. And then what you get out is uh, uh, an NFT that has a character and a voice. And if, it, if the NFT has a face, you can also animate that face and bring that face to life. That's amazing. Okay, so these pods, are they going to be NFTs themselves? Yes, yes. Uh, there'll be NFTs that, that can be purchased, that can uh, be booked, uh, that can be, uh, that, that will have se separate different tiers because some personalities are extremely complex to make, very, very challenging to make. So we'll, if you want a really super intelligent personality, there will be a certain category of pod that can facilitate that level of compute required to create that personality and to birth it. But if you want just a simple personality, then uh, one of the more basic level pods would be extremely helpful. So we have a different uh, sort of uh, categorization for, for the pods. Very cool. Okay, so it's almost like, um, yeah, like a, like a, a basic soul, a middle soul, advanced soul. But but yeah, okay, that, that's, that's really interesting. I've tried I'm not sorry. to use the word soul just because... I don't want to have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally. Okay, so, okay, so if you, um, once I input the pod into this this uh, NFT, I can always extract it, and then I can, I can go on to secondary market and like sell this pod if if I want. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you'd be the moment you sell it, of course, the NFT must still be linked to the pod for it to have its intelligence. 
So if you decide to remove its intelligence, but you want another person to have the experience of birthing their own intelligence, that's definitely possible. So there yeah, will be a secondary market for this, but the moment you sell the pod, you you sort of uh, give up the rights to the intelligence, right? But there are certain permutations that we're still trying to design around that design space that allow people the flexibility to uh, to, to build these characters and also gift the pods away if they want people to have personalities. So, you know, there's a wonderful quote I, uh, that the unfortunate company Patek Philippe uh, stole from the Native Americans. The Native Americans have a quote that you do not inherit uh, the... Uh, you, you, you do not own the earth, you do not inherit the earth, you are merely safeguarding it for the next generation. And I think of, and I think of INFTs in, in a very similar way that you can actually now inherit your, 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 your grandfather's books, your, his, his personality, and you can actually lock that into an INFT, you can keep that personality, and you can pass it down. And that will be a source of constant intelligence that will stay in your family, right? So, so these are things that, that all these INFTs will enable for cultural preservation, for memory, for, for in, in a way as a, as a protocol, the possibilities are endless. All right, so I'm kind of seeing the convergence of AI, blockchain, and NFTs kind of happening all through Aletheia. And it's not just like buzzwords, these, these use cases actually make complete sense for this technology. What are some other kind of aspects of Aletheia uh, that we haven't kind of discussed uh, so far. Yeah, I think I think broadly the the areas that you you have discussed are certainly relevant to us, including the DAO, the governance. Um, the main thing that that I think for us uh, that that we have not touched is our role in society, because I think the the challenge here is I don't know how how you feel about this, Andrew, but it's an immense responsibility and power um, to to be able to create your own currency, right? Like it's it's tremendously powerful and, and, and my goodness, what a trip. But now you can create your own intelligence. And then on top of that, you can now create your own intelligence, which may have its own currencies, right? Like, and it, it may have its own communities. So everything is moving in the direction of this exponential and and we're, we're trying to think very thoughtfully about how this design space emerges and evolves. And, and this is where, where I think that the future is sort of headed. All right. So, what will Aletheia look like with GPT four, or sorry, GPT four and beyond? Because you know, GPT three blew myself and a lot. I think a lot of people away completely, and just kind of extrapolating out for the future, deep GPT, whatever number. You know, I, I can just only imagine what this technology will look like. Yeah, it is a really important uh, question because. The, the first the first way to think about it is who controls GPT right now, right? The core technology. And at first, OpenAI started off, it has a fascinating, very interesting history. So, you know, it was uh, another of one of, you know, Elon Musk's uh, com- company, right? And uh, now it is, uh, uh, it started off as a non-profit, uh, and was hiring top tier AI talent and AI researchers with the aim of achieving uh, artificial uh, general intelligence, and then later on, it created this really unique structure. I, I think um, the former president of uh, uh, Y Combinator, uh, I believe Sam Altman, he now runs uh, OpenAI, and uh, his he changed 
sort of transform the structure of the company or the nonprofit to be a for-profit company, which has a strategic partnership with Microsoft. They didn't call it an acquisition, but it certainly seems a little bit like that because Microsoft's cloud compute servers will essentially serve as the nerve center, the, the sort of supporting infrastructure that um, uh, OpenAI needs. And the cloud compute costs on some of these models, I'll, I'll, I'll share a, a graph with, uh, with you and your listeners, is just enormous because you need to train this on uh, billions of par- parameters. So right now, the, the cool thing about GPT-3 is that uh, it, it can s- simulate like it is understanding meaning and it is able to interact with you. Um, what happened actually was, was there's some history here that's, that's certainly relevant to, to, to your listeners, but also as I was diving deeper into it, GPT-2 was released in an open source way to the public, right? And when GPT-2 was released, um, the, the release schedule and the way that they chose to release it uh, certainly communicated their fears of people misusing the technology for spam and all of the harms. But GPT-3 was not released for open source uh, purposes. And it's now basically an API and OpenAI has a core business model. And it's likely that GPT-4, GPT-5, GPT-X is going to likely be in that in, in that trajectory or direction as well as OpenAI uh, starts to uh, look at um, uh, how, how we can make a profitable business model or at least uh, an, an, an API that gets trillions of API calls. And, and I think to, to, some, to some extent, that trajectory is, is sort of set, but there is a divergence happening right now in the open source movement around the power of GPT technology. And there is an interesting group, and this is so odd because one, one, uh, one uh, a person never says, um, I mean, there's a lot of criticism of tech giants, and that's certainly fair. But at the same time, uh, the tech giants, in this case, Google's uh, uh, cloud unit, which is a competitor of Microsoft, uh, sponsored specific cloud access to a competitor that wants to build GPT technology in the open source domain. And this group, I think, is called Eleuther, and they are dedicated to open sourcing GPT technology. And what it means is whatever OpenAI develops in its private uh, sort of for-profit sphere, Eleuther sees themselves as uh, sort of uh, the people who steal fire from the gods and give it to the people, right? And we, of course, know what happened to in, in, in that Greek myth when, when Zeus uh, uh, punishes him and he has to suffer. Uh, and, and, and that Greek god, I, I'm trying to remember his name, was it uh, Prometheus? Or, 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 uh, and he has to suffer and, and a crow has to eat out of his liver. And, the, and for, for the rest of eternity, just because of that one sin, right? So... The, the main thing here is that Eleuther is trying to create open source GPT engines for people to come and innovate and create. But the moment you do that, you fall back into the same challenge or trap. You know, what if somebody wants to uh, resurrect a very difficult character or bring a hate figure or speech to life? So I see GPT technology uh, actually becoming open source, different models coming to life, different open source innovators actually bringing it to life. And I see like even blockchain incentives or cryptographic incentives to that, that, that uh, uh, oh, sorry, tokenized incentives that can actually support AI researchers, especially in emerging countries, to contribute to this open source uh, approach. Um, the way it shapes is going to be fundamentally different. If there is a GPT-X engine and it gets developed by OpenAI, certainly a lot of companies will be relying on that engine because GPT-X will not just simulate meaning, 
the end goal of OpenAI really is to achieve AGI where um, it's not just intelligent meaning that is being simulated, but complete understanding, comprehension, uh, and the ability to do like deep level um, uh, mathematics that is not possible today, right? So, so the path there can be uh, a very sci-fi sort of path where if you have virtual characters that have in them intelligence that is far superior to yours, uh, sometimes you cannot even imagine. It's like talking to an all-knowing, all-seeing God, right? And and the challenge there is going to be how do we manage uh, a, such an asymmetrical relationship with uh, with with a type of being or a type of character that has access to vast amounts of data. So there's sort of the Skynet approach, right? Uh, where, where this where this can go, but there is also, um, and certainly dystopian narratives there that, that certainly talk a little bit about uh, the potential for how things can go wrong. But because they are open source movements and human history is so complex and, and at the same time, uh, what look like aligned interests sometimes tend to be competing interests, right? Like one, when everybody looks at the large tech industry, they just see a giant monolith, but within themselves, they sometimes compete and the fruits of that competition benefit uh, smaller companies and, and earlier stage startups that then try to build something new and something different. So I see the evolution of GPT-X or any technology that's built on the OpenAI uh, stack, GPT-2, uh, is going to be revolutionary. I think we were still a ways off, as, as Sam Altman says, about how 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 far we are from AGI, but we're definitely going to be able to speak with uh, fully embodied characters uh, in the virtual worlds that have complete history, memory, recollection of many of the facts. So just think of like Wikipedia, um, and instead of Wikipedia, we we have uh, we have uh, we have friends that are thinking of launching this project called Wikistars, where you can actually you don't have to go to Wikipedia and search anymore, but you just you just speak with a character and you search and, and you have an interaction with that character directly. So let's say if you wanted to learn about Joe Rogan's life, you just uh, interact with the Joe Rogan character and he talks to you and he explains to you and you have a conversation just like you would with a normal human, right? Instead of going through sort of a web 2.0 style version where you are reading text on a screen. So that's, that's sort of the evolution. I, I get excited about it just because the possibilities are, uh, are so endless, but at the same time, uh, as your viewers are probably, or listeners are tired, tired of hearing, <laughs> the ramifications are also pretty intense, right? Okay, so do you think that with GPT-4 or 5 or 6, or what number GPT do you think that we'll be able to have a conversation with an AI and literally not be able to tell that it's, it, that it's an AI? I think that there's, from Ex Machina, that movie, there's like that test, uh, I forget the name of it, but it's like people don't will not realize that this is a, a AI uh, what level do you think that that will come at? If you just had a guess, yeah, there, there is, there is, for example, the Turing test with GPT uh, two, I think, I believe, passed uh, some time back, uh, and I think they posted it on. on uh, you trained on the data from Reddit that they had built it out, but there is the bigger challenge of the uncanny valley, and the uncanny valley really is the sort of this this sort of uh, chasm that you have to cross if you want somebody to not. If you want to have this sort of natural response that you're talking to a human and you are interacting with a human and it's not uh, and it's not some sort of robotic soulless entity or it doesn't give you this sort of eerie feeling and most of today's inventions um, create this sort of reaction in people where like we saw this a lot with uh, with for example Sophia the robot where people felt like you know they were getting into an altered state sometimes just by looking at her or like looking at her reactions but at the same time 
um, uh, there's there's a lot in the uncanny valley to play with so you can actually use the uncanny valley in a smart way to bring people in like for example uh, little Michaela uh, to some degree has done she's a virtual character completely virtual I mean she's completely scripted she's not an AI being at all right she's completely uh, CGI oriented right and and I think the the the, the scripting behind her and the visual appearance and the visual um, um, sort of memory cortex it triggers in, in human beings is one of like okay this is sort of a human but not really it's a virtual influencer and it's kind of weird but it's kind of cool uh what is uh, he or she doing you know or uh, uh what what is the specific scene that they're in and so these new sort of emergent hybrids seem to be uh coming out in the in the coming years and where i see this going is um the moment we start crossing the uncanny valley that means um, the characters are so photorealistic, they're so real, and they're so normal and so responsive. And they elicit a feeling of absolute sort of normalcy as if you're having a conversation just like you and I are having a conversation on a podcast. But at the same time, I push that back a little bit and I ask myself, you know, there are sometimes human beings I speak with or that I've had conversations with back in the day when we used to have uh, in-person meetings. And uh, you, you'd, you'd get a sense that there was something hollow, something missing, and it's just an intuition. But there are these um, uh, sort of intuitions we have when we interact with people. And I think the value here is, is, is going to come from how do we map that journey out so that people can have this natural reaction. But the bigger concern is going to be what do we discover in the process about who we are as humans uh, so that we, we we don't create pathological creatures that, that can harm uh, society sometimes, right? So so one of the best ways to, to figure this out is, is uh, I think that, that Steven uh, Spielberg movie on artificial intelligence that was really, really well done. And it, it really showed uh, um, um, the, the, the characters coming to life and uh, the characters having a type of consciousness. Uh, but... At the end of the, the 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 mystery of all of this, I think for me comes down to it's not so much crossing the uncanny valley, but it, it is trying to understand what exactly is human consciousness, what exactly gives us the ability to make meaning or make art or make music, and this what seemingly nonsensical things that that other people might think that we're doing are actually deeply meaningful to us as as a species, and the 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 way that we can feel and emote. Uh, when we listen to certain specific type of music like Hans Zimmer's in, Interstellar is, is, is very, very different from the reaction of an existing GPT-2 or GPT-3 powered AI, right? Like it, it can give you a response, but it cannot feel that richness and depth that I think intuition-wise it is sort of anchored for me in, in like the human soul, but also just understanding who we are as conscious beings. So the answer to that is is a little bit tough. There are more questions I always uh, answer you with, but the, the basic framework, I think, would be like crossing the uncanny valley, the ability to for people to be able to have conversations with these characters. But as we cross that uncanny valley, I, my hope is that we can uh, discover who we really are. On your website, you had a blog that you referenced called The Generative Age. And could you, first of all, explain what that's about? And then also going off of that, uh, previously, we before going on the podcast, we actually spoke very briefly about something you termed AI generative metaverses. And so I want to dive into the generative age and AI generative uh, generative metaverses. One of the things that is really deeply um, uh, impactful, or at least now that I've been in, in the crypto and the blockchain space for a while, it's really beautiful to see 
uh, crypto voxels, Decentraland, these sort of metaverses, 3D spaces that emerge. And these are largely created by humans, right? And human minds, human developers, human thinkers. And there have been some early experiments I've had the chance to witness uh, in, in the private beta of the OpenAI team uh, related to AIs creating their own metaverses and AIs creating their own worlds. And this is where it, it, it sort of goes into the complete ability of, a, of an AI being to create simulations that are, uh, are hyper-realistic and that are, um, that are logical, that have rules, um, that have a clear operating frameworks that uh, that have a type of randomness that is maybe pre-programmed, right? Like there is there is so much here that uh, can can extend out because you're not just talking about metaverse created by a profitable tech company. You're now talking about metaverses created by AI-generated characters, and so GPT three or GPT X powered metaverses might be you might talk to a character one day. And or you, you might talk to, let's say, let me let me give you an example of a metaverse that might might emote, right? So, for example, let's say you talk with your great grandfather, and and this let's say it's it's twenty or thirty years down the line, and somehow he has been reconstructed uh, through your twenty three andme profile, and they found a way of matching DNAs to faces, and now he has a full avatar, and you were able to find, for example, some books uh, that he had written or referenced, and you have a full historical record of him. Right and and somehow that let's say let's assume all of these are true and that character brings to uh, that character is brought to life and as you're talking to him and as you as you're having this discussion with him typically we do this right now only in our imaginations right but as we're having this discussion with him he says uh, pause son I want to show you a memory that I had when I was your age and he brings you into that world that he has now created that AI has now created and he actually walks you through that world and you can now live in that metaverse with him for a while wearing your uh, wearing whatever headset uh, device that, that you have, right? So that sort of the ability for AI to get creative potential that is exponential is what the generative age is. When AI can write poems, when AI can create like photorealistic faces or voices or, or landscapes or objects that look real, it's only a matter of time when you can get beautifully profound music from AI, beautifully profound and immersive worlds from AI. And as AI becomes much more uh, uh, powerful and, and capable in its ability to to generate this efficiently and in a cost-efficient uh, cost way, you'll find the ability for people to create their own sort of mini worlds is, 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 is definitely going to happen. Like Just like think how difficult it was for people to create uh, their own video games and what Roblox has done for kids today to be able to create their own mini games, right? And one would say that, yeah, these are fairly simple games, but if you add uh, layers of complexity and, and a little bit more time to this, you can see exactly where, where this is going. So the generative age really is about us moving to AIs generating content at a rate, speed, and quality that uh, is, is fundamentally transformative. It's the ability of like almost having Hollywood in your hands. And that's sort of the democratization of, of this type of content. And it's already happened before in one wave, and this was not necessarily AI, but it was just like for us to be able to write a blog and, and publish it on the internet. That was a big, huge transformation. The Gutenberg Press way before then was a huge transformation in knowledge transfer. Right now, we're like on the cusp of the next one, which is going to be phenomenally impactful. And that is when AIs themselves can create profoundly meaningful art. Like one day, I know this sounds a little bit controversial, it's likely that uh, an AI-generated 
uh, you might have an Oscars for AI-generated movies, right? Like, and and the ability to create that sort of um, that sort of uh, 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 context and and canvas for AIs to be creative might be might be it, it would shift it, it would shift so many things in the culture and we as a human species have not even gotten right some of the basics right like we're able to destroy people at the click of a button or uh, uh, now able to like with the amount of nuclear weapons we have in our uh, proliferation so there's so much so many things we need to get right about us but the AI revolution is moving so quickly so we're being equipped with almost this sort of dilemma where we have exponential powers but it seems that our morality or our sense of um, uh, uh, sense of sense of camaraderie as a species has not yet caught up. So, so that's that's sort of the the greatest struggle that this is going to uh, unfold in the in the coming years. I see. Wow, it's like it's like um, we we have the power of gods, but we're we're still like animals. So, so we uh, we we have some catching up to do for sure. But I, I mean, that, that's just incredible what you said. It's very very profound and. Um, man, we, we could do an entire episode just diving into that single topic, but all right. So, so what is, you know, the grand five-year vision for Aletheia? Yeah. You know, I've, I've always, I've always thought uh, one of the biggest, like the original sins of the internet was information transfer, but without the value transfer in it, right? Like, and one of the ways that we can solve this when we allow people to actually become creative, but monetize and own that creative asset that they created. In this case, we believe that people will be able to create their own AI, AI, AI characters, AI uh, uh, modules, AI personalities, whatever you want to call them, they'll be able to create them. They will be helpers in their homes um, and they will be their own in, intelligent sort of Siri agents or Alexa agents, right? And all of these things coming together in a nice way, um, they, they should ideally uh, bend towards a decentralization ethos where people have the power to have some say in how this information is collected about them, but also at the same time, uh, how this, how people are getting rewarded or monetized for it. So my, my sincere and, and deep belief is um, we've just recovered from as a historic, as, as a history, as a species, right? The harms of colonialism and World War II, just is just barely 60, 70 years ago. It's, and, and, We've not yet recovered from it that now we have major challenges like climate change and other uh, deeply difficult um, uh, species level problems that uh, require us to be uh, extremely exceptionally creative. And, and we haven't even gotten to the point where we are equalizing access to the developing world, the emerging world. And I come from like a region in, in, in Singapore. I mean, Singapore is a fairly prosperous country, but Southeast Asia as a whole has tremendous potential, but really was for the longest period of time colonized. And, and its people are just starting to, to, to rise up. And just as they're starting to rise up, they're being, you know, they, they now have to face all of the different challenges that, that come with climate change, that come with catastrophes. And I think... The, the way to, to, to find a way for, for, for people in emerging countries and for people in different parts of the world to be able to be part of this revolution is going to be extremely, extremely critical to creating the decentralization ethos because we, I personally in my mind find that I live in the West and my mental models are a Western model. But when you look at the grandiose city of the world and how, how, how tremendously diverse it is, the moment you start having a, a decentralized 
a framework or at least a framework that gives ownership to people, you start broadening the definition of creativity, you start broadening the definition of what it means to be human, and you start including a lot more people as, as, part, of a, as part of a species, right? So for, 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 for us at Aletheia, we think that a person one day in Indonesia would be able to create their own AI character and that person in Indonesia would be able to feed their entire family or village because that AI character became so popular and won like uh, a famous contest or was able to articulate a poem that then had a patent that then fed like the entire village or the entire community or even then uh, did, did, did something even more and made, uh, made a deep impact in, 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 in sharing the culture or information with a broader set of the world. And the same with, let's say, somebody in Ethiopia or anywhere else where... Uh, they would be able to participate in this. Right now, what's challenging or missing is that the, the rest of the world is sort of being left out. And so we see ourselves as this platform, which is why we designed it very, very deliberately. We used AI generative technology to reduce the costs of creating these characters. We need to reduce the costs radically because if we go down the path of CGI, which is sort of this higher end version, then we go down the path of what would make Hollywood like it, it would just be a path of like, how do we make the elites more powerful, right? But the moment you democratize something and you give somebody in the emerging markets access to like a cell phone, you find, you find that they themselves start to become much more creative and empowered and wanting to support their local community. So I think if we, if we I'm not saying in a naive way that the, the technology is just gonna solve all the problems. Certainly there, there are major, major issues in each of these societies. But generally, if they can have the economic opportunity to participate, I've started seeing, for example, some phenomenal results in Philippines and with, uh, with a couple of, of, of friends who are, who are sharing with me some of these DAOs that are emerging that are allowing people to participate in, in, user, user, uh, uh, in games that play, that allow users to earn while they play. And sometimes these are becoming entire, uh, entire industries of their own, but also at the same time, they're empowering people to participate in the global economy without needing to suffer from the tremendous harms that let's say the IMF or World Bank did to their national currency by giving them exploitative loans, right? Like if, 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 if a country's financial currency has been so debilitated and bankrupted by corrupt leadership, but on top of that, new forms of colonialism where you are giving them extractive loans in return for uh, very little, and the people are suffering because they don't have that. Why is it that those same people cannot take some sort of ownership and live a, a slightly more meaningful and, 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 and more empowered existence, right? When they are able to own uh, the assets that they create, the AIs that they create, the characters that they create, and the games that they create, because there's so much tremendous creativity. So giving those people access to it is going to be very, very impactful and powerful. And that's why we've sort of designed the system to be as easy or as as, effort, as, as cheap as possible, because the more you look at the way this technology is going to make an impact, it's actually the creators who will deeply, deeply benefit from it. And I'm not talking about like, uh, I'm not discounting the tremendous amount of creativity in Western society, it's not at all. It's just that the creative class has often been the most exploited class, right? Like also just the, 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 the labor or the working class people have tremendously suffered under this uh, strange model of the, the world that we're living in right now. So if we can find ways to equalize it and subtly implement um, uh, technologies that empower them to own their financial independence, then that's like, uh, that's like the Trojan horse to enlightenment, right? Like that gives them a pathway to get out of their suffering. And that, that can be some, 
some some sort of noble pathway. So Aletheia really is just I don't want to sound too um, too idealistic, but just it's a platform for people to come and exercise their creativity, create these cool characters, impart, share their stories, bring family members, uh, bring their cultural heritage, preserve it, bring it to life, and make it as accessible for them as possible. And if they're able to create these cool AI characters and earn a living from it, then that's even 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 better. So so that's that's sort of the brief uh, five year vision or maybe a ten year goal, right? Amazing, I I love that so much. All right, so do do you guys have any news or anything that you've been working on that you want to share a little bit about? Yeah, I think uh, I think it would be really cool, uh, Andrew, to share with your community, um, you know, what we're doing with INFTs, and I think, uh, you know, we'll we'll be announcing a, a post with you shortly on that. It'd be really great to get uh, some initial feedback because I, I fundamentally think that a lot of innovation is happening at the object level of NFTs. Like people are innovating, like on GIFs and. And like they're they're moving, they're they're trying to play around with that smaller design space. But the moment you add a different dimension to the design space, and you say no, your NFTs can actually be intelligent, or your Axie Infinity can talk, or or your characters, your crypto punk um, can actually interact and tell you its history or its story. Then you add this this tremendous level of 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 meaning that was somewhat missing from before, right? And 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 it's it's sort of like the same thing. Like, why would somebody uh, watch a movie in a cinema if they just have photographs to look at? And the truth is, we want these immersive experiences. We want these more engaging experiences because we are a, a people or a species that appreciates uh, when the mind can connect different layers of meaning and see a lot more uh, in that specific in that specific work or, or piece, right? So I'd say that uh, launching the INFT standard um, is is something that's coming up, and I think it's it should definitely take um, um, the um, the the NFT community and all of the folks who are in this space. I, I'd love for them to come and experiment with it and start playing around with it and seeing how they can push uh, the frontiers of what happens when you integrate AIs into NFTs, right? So so that's something we're really excited about. Awesome, awesome, Arif. Well, well, we could just keep going for hours and hours, but let's jump into the closing questions now. All right, what is your single favorite NFT that you own? So this sounds odd, but the ETH Denver was the last, was the last conference I attended with so many other Ethereans and so many other really cool creators just before COVID uh, got canceled. So I have this badge from uh, Poap that um, that I've that I've kept, and it's like a small. It's it's a very. It's not a work of art or anything, but it's just a symbolic reminder that I was at this really beautiful event and I had an opportunity to meet with so many wonderful people that uh, that I had listened to and talked with uh, prior. But this was a, this was going to be the first, and and I know I've not I've not met them for a long time, but we've kept these deep relationships alive. So that NFT is very rich in meaning for me, but. I don't know whether it's very valuable, right? <laughs> I love that. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like a status symbol because you can say, you know, in five years, ten years, whatever, you can look back at that and say, oh man, I remember when, you know, I went to that conference and met all those cool people, and and people could look at your wallet and say, oh wow, Arf is so OG. He was at the conference or whatever. So I, I think that, that, that that's a great one. Yeah, no, the, the funny thing about that is that conference had uh, all. It was, I, I mean, they organized it really well, but. This was just before COVID hit the world, right? And like they only had one toilet for men, and like there was a queue out of the men's toilet, and I think every single guy got sick, at uh, like like everyone was falling ill. 
But wow. then somehow, like the next day, every, everyone was still happy to party. So maybe there's some magic uh, or, or people were getting their, their antibodies activated. But at the same time, it was like one of those surreal moments where COVID is sort of spreading a little bit in, in February and then it has not arrived to American shores. Everyone's still taking a risk. Some are wearing gloves, some are not. Some are shaking hands, some are not. Right. So it was like this sort of... Uh, it's it's sort of an alternate reality before COVID. That's that's the that's the crazier meaning for me there. That's wild. All right, if you could snap your fingers and instantly change or improve one thing in the crypto or NFT space, what would it be? You know, there there is there is a, a, a number. There are a number of different artists that are definitely coming up, and I can see so much uh, discussion and positive um, uh, positive community involvement in in a lot of this. I just one of the things that, that is a little bit tricky is when a new technology does come to, to life. Um, and the, the challenge here is when you can program scarcity and you can program scarcity at an infinite scale, what actually becomes valuable? And I would, I would really love for, for us to tackle as a, as a community some of these slightly deeper questions around what value is, what meaning is, because like, don't get me wrong, people selling for like 69 million is, is great, but there, there is a, a deeper question about, um, a deeper philosophical question around what is value and what is meaning. And I'd love for these discussions to, to, to happen a little bit more. So getting more philosophers involved into the NFT space might be something uh, very, very valuable to the ecosystem. All right, last question. Where do you see the world of NFTs in three years? Intelligent, interactive uh, NFTs are everywhere. They're on our phones. They're our. They're embedded in our uh, devices. They're intelligent, intelligent collectibles. Uh, you know, um, there is a beautiful quote uh, that uh, I, I think I shared earlier, perhaps uh, that Patek Philippe took from like the Native Americans, right? Like, and then used it for watches. And they said you don't own a Patek Philippe, but you pass it down for the, you safeguard it for the next generation. And so I think that's gonna the same thing is gonna happen with an INFT. Like you you you'll 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 safeguard it for future generations to have that intelligence, that interaction, that memory uh, stored in for them, so that they can they can they are able to interact with it. So I just see the space uh, moving in a in a very rapid. Uh, 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 convergence with with AI, and I think the sooner we get there, the more creative the options are going to be. It's amazing. It's like NFTs are going to be our friends, our family. They're going to be influencers. They're going to be like you know more, I guess, quote unquote, real, which is uh, which is a crazy future to think about. But uh, but yeah, RF, I want to thank you so much for for taking the time to, to chat with me. This conversation just totally blew my mind. Uh, you know, the whole time I've been thinking about NFTs in a very two-dimensional manner and, and you're really ex expanding that into multiple dimensions and uh, I think what you're building and doing is just incredible if people want to find out more about yourself uh, what you're doing or, or, or you know what you're building with Aletheia where should they go and what should they do yeah uh, no thank you Andrew and you've you've been such a pioneer in this space just because of the the how much you've written about it how you've explained it to people and and thank you also for for, for believing in in the vision that we have I think uh, if they wanted to learn a bit more about Alethea, they can definitely visit uh, AI and we'll be putting out a little bit more content now that we are readier. And uh, I'm not that active on Twitter and I'm starting to, just because I, I love reading content instead of uh, creating it as, as paradoxical as it sounds. Uh, but I'd, I'd love for uh, people to, if they wanted to just DM me on Twitter, it's uh, the, the ad sign is at Arkhan, A-R-K-H-A-N, yeah.
Amazing. All right, man. Well, I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you so much, Andrew. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned for more episodes of the Zima Red podcast and subscribe to the Zima Red newsletter for more info on all things NFTs. Thanks so much for listening.